First Corinthians chapter 10. First Corinthians chapter 10. So it's the same outline as last week, though I did hand out um, a new one tonight. It's not new material on there. Uh, so if you have it from last week, great. If you need a new one, we should have had plenty. Uh, did anybody not get an outline? 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Once again, we're in verses 14 through 22. First Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 14. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What am I saying then? That an idol is anything? Or what is offered to idols is anything? Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? As we noted last week, the, this text is really a summation to some degree of what Paul has been saying going back to chapter 8, at least a, a final conclusion. And the conclusion we noted last week as we started into it, only getting uh, to the first couple of verses, is a passage like this reminds us something that I think is absolutely essential. And that is the single greatest threat to our fellowship with God has been, is, and always will be, idolatry. Idolatry. Now, I know, you know, our gut reaction to this at times is to think, well, I don't have little statues, I've not made little wooden things out of creeping things or other animals, uh, I, I don't have any kind of shrine or altar in my home. But, but we recognize our idolatry has gotten much more sophisticated, though nonetheless dangerous. We still struggle with idolatry. One of my favorite quotes from Calvin. He's, he's famous for saying, the human heart is an idol factory. An idol factory. That there, 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 is, this, that there is this line, that, that this, this factory line in your heart that just pumps out idol after idol after idol. And idolatry is difficult in some ways. In some ways, it would be easier if idolatry were just confined to bowing before some kind of statue. That would be really easy to identify, wouldn't it? That's not what it is. Idolatry at its heart is subtle, more often than not, and the reason is because I, to, to commit idolatry is fairly easy. You simply give someone or something else ultimate affection that God alone is worthy of receiving. I give ultimate affection, devotion, love, attention, time, resources 
to someone or something else. In other words, I transfer. It's not that I can't have people that I love and am devoted to and give resources to, but if I do it in such a way, or activities, and do it in such a way that it robs God of the worship of which He is worthy, this is what I am doing. I am now transferring my worship of God to someone or something else. And you don't have to have a little statue for that to be idolatry. This is a serious, real, dangerous threat to our relationship with God. In fact, it has been said that every sin, every sin, is in some way or another a sin of idolatry. If nothing else, worshiping yourself. An idolatry of me, wanting my own wants and needs and desires fulfilled, which again is fundamentally an act of idolatry. And it is significant that when God offers His Ten Commandments, that the first two, and they are in order of importance at that point, involve idolatry. You shall have no other God before me, and you shall make no graven image. This is a big deal. And this is what we started looking at last week, that that as, as Paul kind of brings to a conclusion, though he's going to talk in verses 23 through the end uh, in chapter 10, he's going to deal with another issue related to the whole meat being offered to idols thing that goes all the way back to chapter 8. Really, what he's been talking about up to this point is brought to a conclusion here. And Paul does so by really drawing out the serious problem that's going on in Corinth. We noted this last week as we opened the sermon, that that keep in mind what is behind verses 14 through 22 is is this, this problem in the church where apparently mature believers are found at the local temple engaging in the festivals to the false gods. Not that they were doing the immoral aspects of it. Instead, it seems that some of these quote-unquote mature believers viewed, viewed it as permissible that they could go down and participate in the ritual meals, in, in, the, in the, the fun part of these things. They could actually go down to the temple, eat in the temple of whatever god it was, and feel the freedom to do that. Because in their minds, theologically, they had justified this, and Paul will bring it up in this text, Those gods don't actually exist. Idols don't really represent anything. Little statues, if you have a statue of Poseidon, it doesn't matter because Poseidon's not real. Aphrodite's not real. Diana's not real. Zeus is not real. These are part of the pantheon of gods of the Greeks. And so these guys were saying, it doesn't matter. I can go eat this meat. What difference does it make? It's just meat. Well, this was scandalous to some of the believers in Corinth. This was scandalous to some of the younger believers. This was scandalous to some of those Gentiles who had just been saved out of that. And apparently their their consciences were offended. And we can assume that there might even be the danger that some of these uh, new converts were being drugged back into idol worship. They, they saw these mature believers eating the meat and they thought, well, game on. I can go back. I can have best, the best of both worlds. On Saturday, I can go down to the local temple and do what they do at the local temple. And on Sunday, I can go to church and get my grace card punched. Human nature hasn't changed much, has it? All right. So I I can do what I want and come and we're all good here. So this is the problem that I think is underlying Paul's words in 14 through 22 as he really tries to communicate why this matter is so serious. So this is what we uh, 
opened up with last week in this text, Paul sums up his argument by imploring the reader to flee idolatry in all of its forms. Flee idolatry in all of its forms. And for us as believers in Christ, idolatry is no less a threat. It may have morphed. It may take on different uh, applications and types. Nonetheless, it is still a very real threat to spiritual growth and development uh, and our fellowship with the Lord. And so, how do we deal with idolatry? Well, three issues. We can effectively deal, deal with idolatry when we understand three issues. Number one, understand the danger of it. This was what we spent time on last week. Verse 14, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. And again, all, all, the only other time I can find the word like that used is when the Bible says to flee from sexual immorality. In other words, the Bible rarely says language so starkly. Don't be strong and courageous. Don't face it. Don't try and endure it. Don't try, you know, and persevere under it. If you are threatened with idolatry, you run away. It's the strongest word you could use to flee. You run from it. Now, there's only one reason why Paul would say that. Because it's dangerous. Because it's dangerous. That's the only thing you run from. Dangerous things. And then, then he goes on to say, to, to really, I think, press this point. Verse 15, I speak as to wise men. Judge for yourselves what I say. I think this is Paul's way of saying, you're reasonable, rational people. You, 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 you're smart people. So listen to what I'm about to say. You judge for yourselves. In other words, he's saying, you judge for yourselves and, by the way, I'm right if you're wise and sensible, you'll see that. I mean, the implication's obvious. You get to the end of this passage and you don't agree with me, then go back to verse 15. That ain't talking about you, all right? That's what he's getting at. If you, if, you're, if you don't see this as a real problem, then you're not sensible, all right? You're not wise like the people in verse 15. So he's really appealing to them, which, by the way, would have made sense. Folks in Corinth were known as educated, intellectual, uh, even the church. This church had a very high pedigree. Paul has even stated they have, a, they have a knowledge of theology that's somewhat unrivaled. Uh, they had Paul as a pastor. They've had Timothy. They've had Apollos. And this, this, these, are solid, these are some solid people that taught these folks. So I, th- I think in some ways they have kind of fallen back on this theological pedigree, assuming, well... We're good here, you know, so whatever I think is probably pretty good because I've had all this good teaching and training, so I can justify going down to the temple. Paul is saying, look, if you're, if you're as wise and sensible as I've said you are, then, then you'll make sure to understand this basic principle. This is something to flee from. All right, number two. This is new for tonight. You want to fill in a little blank here? Here you go. Number two, understand the corruption of idolatry. Understand the corruption of idolatry. So Paul's going to do more than just give a warning here. I mean, Paul is a consummate theologian, uh, a pastor. He has a pastor's heart. So he's going to explain to them why this matters. But he's going to do this in an interesting way. He's going to build what I would call an inductive argument. In other words, he's, he's, going, to make, you know, he's going to make a premise. He's going to make a point. Then he's going to make another point. Then he's going to draw out the conclusion at the end. And we'll go ahead and sneak a peek at the conclusion. Here's what he's going to say. You need to flee from idolatry. Because instead of this sad excuse you've used that the idols don't exist, and because they don't exist, then I can feel free to do what I want, 
when it comes to, to eating the food that's been offered to these idols in the temple, uh, ra- rather than convince yourself of that, what you're doing is worshiping a demon. This is going to be his point. This is what he's going to get at. That really what you're doing, no, you're not worshiping Poseidon. I know, Poseidon doesn't exist. I get it. By the way, I'm mentioning him because there is a there was a temple to him in Corinth. All right? So I know he doesn't exist. That's not that's the least of your words. If you can continue to do that, then you're worshiping Satan. You're worshiping demons. This is demonic. Now, notice then how he's going to build this argument to say, here's why this is so demonic, because it, in essence, corrupts the work of the gospel itself. It is a corruption, a hypocrisy. What you are doing is is a bold, uh, in-your-face affront to the work of Christ. So let's look at this. Beginning in verse 16, he's going to draw on two images, one from the New Testament, one from the Old. I mean, obviously, they don't have a New Testament here. But the Lord's Supper, then he's going to talk about the peace offering from the Old Testament. So notice what he does here. Verse 16. The cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break. Is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. Now, clearly, Paul is referring here to the Lord's Supper. He's going to talk about it again in chapter 11. Interesting little aside here. The fact that Paul talks about the Lord's Supper this way, the book of 1 Corinthians was probably written around 55 A.D., and the fact that Paul talks about the Lord's Supper with with such simple language clearly shows the Lord's Supper has been faithfully practiced in the church already. So within, within 20 years of Christ's ascension, The church is faithfully fulfilling his command to take of this meal as often as you meet together. So much so that when he writes this letter, he doesn't go into in-depth discussion about this thing. He assumes everybody knows what he's talking about. When he says, you take the cup of blessing, he knows they're talking about the cup that Jesus himself took on the night that he was arrested, eating the Passover meal, transformed the third cup of the Passover, called the cup of blessing. And he said, this cup will now be taken in remembrance of my blood that was shed for you. So, again, there, there's this underlying assumption they know what he, that they know what he's talking about. But what I want you to notice is the language that he uses here. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? Now, I don't know if, you, if you've ever thought much about why we call the Lord's Supper communion. The word communion means to commune, Right? That's language of relationship, it's language of fellowship. And that relationship, fellowship, moves two directions. It is communion with one another. So in other words, when we take of the Lord's Supper, when we take of the cup, we take of the bread, uh, that, that, is a, that is symbolic of our oneness together. We are connected. Our hearts are knit together as a result of what God has done for us in the gospel. So much so that in the New Testament, the Bible makes it clear that the blood of Christ is a stronger bond than the physical blood you possess with family if they're not believers. If you have family members that are not believers, you have a much deeper and more significant relationship with the other people in this room than you do with your family who aren't believers. Jesus himself made this clear. This is clear New Testament teaching that the, that the bond created by the blood of Christ is of much deeper power and significance because that is an eternal bond. Your physical blood is not, right? Your physical blood is not an eternal bond. 
blood of Christ is. So that's why, one reason why we call it communion. But also it represents our communion with the Lord. Interestingly enough, the word here, communion, going to drop some Greek on you, but your Wednesday night crowd, you all can handle it, even after the big meal, all right? This is the Greek word koinonia. You perhaps have heard this word if you've been in church circles long enough. Koinonia is the classic word that's used to describe the fellowship of the church. And really, there's no direct English translation of this word, by the way, that, that expresses the deep intimacy of fellowship. This is, some, this is like soul-stitched-together kind of intimacy. But, what, but Paul uses that same word that more often than not is used to talk about our relationship with one another. Now he's saying, the cup of blessing, is it not the communion, the deep and abiding fellowship that we have with the blood of Christ? So he's taking that image, that language of, of, of fellowship, of partaking in it, of being deeply and intimately connected. And he's saying, when you take of the Lord's Supper, when you take of this cup, this cup is a, a sign, a symbol. It, it points to the fact you are united with Christ through his blood. His blood, his shed blood, his atoning death, his substitutionary death, the, 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 in essence, the, the blood being applied to you means that now you have fellowship with Christ. You are in Him. He is in you. This is all wrapped up in communion. This, by the way, is why you know, we take the Lord's Supper very seriously. You go to some churches, the Lord's Supper gets tacked on at the end of a service. We have really, especially over the last four or five years, because I've really become even more convinced of this, we only do it four times a year. It needs to be the focus of those services. It's that important. Communion is a big deal. We should make it a big deal. Because at the end of the day, it's the only reason you got any hope. It's the only reason I have any hope. It's because of what Christ has done. So this, this is a big deal. And because it, it symbolizes not just our relationship with one another, but our communion, our fellowship, our koinonia with the blood of Christ. Then he uses the similar language when it comes to the bread. So the bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And then he adds this. For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of that one bread. So again, he's using that same kind of language. He's talking about this spiritual triangle. Christ at the top, I'm at one point, you're at another point. We all have fellowship with each other. And the Lord's Supper, the meal of the Lord's Supper, to sit down at the Lord's table and partake of this meal says, I am in Christ, Christ is in me, and we are stitched together through the blood of Christ. This would have been even more powerfully symbolized back in the day. What, what Paul's probably referring to here in verse 17, when he says, though we are many, we are one bread and one body, and all partake of the one bread, that, that they probably passed an entire loaf around. I mean, you know they didn't have communion plates, right? And they definitely didn't have those plates that have the handy-dandy little holes where the cups go in, all right? They didn't have anything like that. So what would they have done? Well, probably, you know, the elder of the church uh, would have bro broken bread, probably like Jesus did, symbolically anyway, and, and handed it, probably in somebody's house, and they're passing it around. And as they pass it around, they're taking a piece off. So that would have been a really profound image, right? That, that we're, we are breaking off a piece of the body of Christ, we're doing it from the one loaf of bread to symbolize the one body of Christ and that we are one body of Christ. All right. So I think you get the picture here. All of this imagery comes together here 
to say, when you sit down at the Lord's table, here's what you're doing. You, you, are, you, are, you are saying, you know, I'm in Christ, Christ is in me, and we are in one another. It speaks to deep fellowship and intimacy. Okay, so keep that image in your mind. Then go on to the next verse. Because now, now he's going to use, a, he's, before he makes his concluding argument, all right, before he brings home his point, he's going to say in verse 18, Observe Israel after the flesh. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partakers, fellowshippers of the altar? All right, so he doesn't just do the Lord's Supper. He takes them back to the Old Testament, as Paul is the master at doing. Takes them back to probably what's the peace offering. The peace offering was a sin offering. And, and in particular, it probably is the offering where you would have brought an animal to the priest. priest would have slain it, all right? He, he would have killed it, sacrificed it. Uh, then he would have placed the meat, the, the animal, on the, the bronze altar. We, we, we referenced this Sunday night. All right, so the brazen altar or the, the altar of burnt offering. And for this offering, a couple of things happened. One, I mean, it's, if you remember, I don't, I don't want to make light of the, of the brazen altar, but in some ways it functioned like a big outdoor grill. Because the priest ate and you ate, all right? So they would take the lamb or, you know, or the bull and they would put it on there and the priest would get some of the food. And, you know, when it was done, okay, uh, you'd get some of it. And then the rest was burnt before the Lord. So all of this is similar imagery, okay? So you're partaking of the meat. The priest is partaking of it. God is being then given the rest of it. So it still shows this similar kind of fellowship. Again, with it being a sin offering, this is language of forgiveness. This is the means by which I have fellowship with God if I'm in the Old Testament. So so to eat of this flesh, to eat of this animal that had been sacrificed to the Lord was to show I'm in fellowship with the God that this has been sacrificed to. Okay? Now, the reason why I think Paul introduces this imagery here is because this even more explicitly paints the picture of what they're doing wrong. So again, keep in mind these two images. Lord's Supper, and keep in mind all three of these things. These are all meals, right? The Lord's table, the peace offering, and those who are going down to the temple and eating of the, of the food that had been offered in worship to the false god. Now, again, these were smart folks. So, Paul is going to anticipate their argument against him. Paul does this all the time in his writings, by the way. He anticipates an argument somebody's going to make, he brings it up, and then he answers it. That's what he does here. Notice this next verse. What am I saying then? It's a good question. Because he has said, flee from idolatry, and then he jumps to this thing about communion and Old Testament offerings, burnt offerings, all right? So what am I getting at? Well, these guys were smart. They knew what he was getting at. He brings up the Lord's table. He brings up the Old Testament offering. He's suggesting that they are engaging in an act of worship. That's what he's saying. Now, here's how they're going to come back to him, and here's what he's answering in this verse. What am I saying then, that an idol is anything, or what is offered to idols is anything? He doesn't want them to get confused here. Because somebody may justify their behavior, like I said just a minute ago, by saying, hey, these idols, the God doesn't exist. I mean, when they offered the burnt offering to God in the Old Testament, that God existed. That God exists. That's a real thing. 
When you take of the Lord's Supper, Jesus, the Son of God, exists. So these aren't comparing of the same things. So, so Paul's going to answer this, and this is when he makes this conclusion. Verse nineteen, or verse twenty. Rather, the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons, and not to God. Listen, Corinth, you've missed the point here. If you really think this isn't a big deal, simply because those gods don't exist, you missed the point. There are supernatural beings that do exist, and they are behind idolatry. And it means you are worshiping a demon. Church, let me bring this home just to make sure we understand where tabernacle stands on this stuff. I say tabernacle, I'm going to speak for you, whether you like it or not, all right? Every other religion in the world is demonic. Don't let media or people say, well, but they do good things, or they're peaceful, or you know, they're just trying to live their own lives. Okay, fine. I'm just what I'm telling you is you don't have to uh, dress in black, listen to heavy metal, draw pentagrams on the ground, and listen to heavy metal music. In order to be a Satan worshiper, all right? You don't have to put 666 on you in order to be a Satan worshiper. You know what you have to do in order to worship demons? Not worship the one true God. Everything else is demonic. Everything else is demonic. Everything else is demonic. And let, let me ask you this. What would Satan rather have people do? Sacrificing chickens and dressed in black? Or being good people who do good things? Who's going to go to which church, all right? Are you going to go to the chicken-sacrificing church, or are you going to go to the good things and good people church, all right? So, obviously, he, 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 would, he would want this subtle form. So, I, I just bring that up as a way to bring out application in this particular kind of text, to, just to remind us, if you're not worshiping the one true God, this is Paul's point. It's not that it's, it, it doesn't exist. It, you know, it's, it's not that the gods of Hinduism don't exist. I mean, they don't. What's behind them? Demons. It's demonic. And then notice this last phrase. This is, this is where it draws his point. I don't want you to have fellowship, koinonia, intimacy, connection. I don't want you being stitched together with demons. And here's what he's suggesting. If you're going down to that temple, and you're in that temple, and you're hanging out with the pagans just like they're doing, and you're eating the meat just like they're eating, guess what? No one else knows any distinction here. This is an act, of, you're, you're sitting down at a meal, at a table, and you're partaking. You're indicating you're in fellowship with them by doing this. This is why he then adds this in, the, in, that, in verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and of the table of demons. In other words, you can't go down there on Saturday, and then you can't come here on Sunday and then take of, of the bread and of the cup. You can't do that. It's corrupting. It's hypocritical. It, it, is, it is two different. It's like, it's like Jesus saying you can't serve two masters. All right, you can't do this. Because you sitting down at that table is, in essence, giving credence or viability to that. Now, I think you and I can understand this if we think a bit more about the nature of a meal. Now, for, for the most part, when you, you know, a lot of our meals, when we eat, it's kind of utilitarian, right? We eat because we have to eat. But then there are some meals that are special occasions, right? 
And the reason why you eat at these special occasions is because to sit down at the table with someone says that you have a relationship with that someone, or if it's meeting somebody new, you want to. To have a meal together says there's a connection here between us. That's why we eat at the holidays. That's why we eat at special occasions. I mean, even even the simplest wedding, they still throw nuts and mints at you, right? I mean, even that, there's food at all this stuff. Everything we do includes a food component because the, not only that we like to eat, really it's deeper than that. I promise you it is. There's something connecting when you and I eat together. In fact, we even call it, you do know this is a Judeo-Christian New Testament phrase, breaking bread together. That's Lord's Supper language that the rest of the world uses, right? Breaking bread together. It speaks of a relationship. Let let me illustrate this in a really silly way. You'll see how this would be a problem in, in Corinth in terms of them eating there and then coming and taking of the Lord's Supper and why it was so scandalous. So let's say tomorrow you, you decide, you know, let's go out to eat. You and your spouse, and you want to go to one of New Bern's fine establishments, all right? Morgan's, Chelsea, Arby's, you know, bacon, beef, and cheddar, or whatever, you know, curly fries, whatever, you know, Jamocha shake, all right, one of the best meals on the planet. But So whatever you think is good, so, so you all make your way to Arby's, and you see me sitting in the corner. There's somebody eating with me. You can't see the gentleman that's eating with me, but you see me, I see you, I wave you over, you come over and greet yourself, and you notice that sitting at the table is none other than John MacArthur. Wow! John MacArthur, probably getting a sermon idea from me, right? So there he is, there they are, John MacArthur, Scott Gleason, having, having dinner together. Now you're going to walk away and you're going to assume something. They've got a relationship. Now let's say then you do the same thing a week later. Same spot. Me in the corner, eating with a gentleman. You know it's not John MacArthur because you see the back of his head. Instead, you come up and lo and behold, it's Joel Osteen. You're confused at that point, aren't you? Because you're making an assumption. If I sit down at the table and eat with somebody, me and that person have some kind of fellowship. And in fact, it is confusing. You would wonder, so why in one week... Is he here with MacArthur? And another week, he's here with Osteen. When on Sundays, he definitely says what he, he sings the praises of MacArthur, but he's quick to be snarky about Osteen. Why is he here at Arby's with both of these guys in two different weeks? So now, I know that's a ridiculous illustration, but it kind of does present the point. Now, let's, we get a bit more serious here. What, what would the difference be then if one week you saw me with my wife, but the second week, I'm eating with a woman who's not my wife or my mother. Ooh, now now it got awkward, didn't it? Because you're assuming something if I sit down to eat. Now, here's really, though, what Paul's getting at, and this is the real danger. Because what he's saying by saying all this, when you go do that, when you sit at that table, and then you come to the Lord's table, you are dragging that demon straight to the Lord's table. When you go sit at that table, it's like you're dragging the blood and body of Christ along with the church straight into the temple of that demon. Now, it's going to get a little harsh here, all right? Because again, you and I, we're not talking about temples. We're not talking about statues. But if every sin is traced back to idolatry, because every sin is ultimately a worship of self, These words kind of scream at you, don't they? 
I mean, it should really give us serious pause. The argument that Paul makes here, again, it, that's what Paul does. He, he just kind of pulls you in and then he slaps you, all right? That's what he does. He, it, it's surprising. Why is he talking about the Lord's Supper? Why is he talking about a peace offering? Because he's telling you that every sin, every time you step out of God's will, every time you give your affection to another, you're dragging the blood and body of Christ with you to worship a demon. Functionally, practically speaking, that's what sin is. So, so the, the, word, the words are profound. The words here are significant. And so in our, in our day and in our time, I think we need to appreciate you know, the ways in which we can subtly engage in the sins of idolatry. And maybe a passage like this brings that out to an even greater degree, that we think carefully about what idols might be in our hearts and in our minds. What things are we giving our affection and devotion to of which God alone is worthy? And we've got to be mindful of the ways in which we are associating then with the world. I've given you some verses here that encourage us in this way. Ephesians 5.11 says, take no part. The word part is koinonia, all right? And that, it's a form of it. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 2 Corinthians 6.15 and 16. What accord is Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? We are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. You're the temple. I'm the temple. So why would I drag the worship of demons in with it? All right, let me give you one last one here, because we've got to get to this last verse. And that is, you need to understand the consequences of idolatry. The consequences of idolatry are stated Pretty shockingly, verse 22. At least one of them. All right, It's not all of them, but this is one of them. Maybe the most dangerous one. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? That's an awful phrase, right? I mean, what I mean by that is, well, how would you like that to be on your tombstone? Here lies Pastor Scott Gleason, known for provoking the Lord to jealousy. All right, I mean, that just sounds like a... That's a pretty awful thing. I, I would rather arouse anything else in the Lord but jealousy, right? That's what he's saying here. He's saying that engaging in this kind of activity is provoking. When I hear the word provoke, I think like irritate. I have a couple of images that come to mind. I think of what happens when little children, I think of my boys, when my boys, and you do it too, maybe even as adults, what happens when you come across an ant pile? What do you do to it? You kick it. You know you do. All right, you know you do. Even now, as old, old people, all right, you know, you go up there and you kick it, and that you still love to watch those ants scurry, right? That's provoking the ant pile. The other phrase I thought of was poking the bear. You're familiar with this phrase? When you, when you poke the bear? I don't know who the guy was who thought he needed a principle not to do that, all right? But, you know, that, that seems like common sense. I, I read one suggestion, by the way, that said that goes back to the Cold War. I couldn't find verification of that. That seems like an urban legend. But that we didn't want to provoke Russia, all right? You don't want to poke the bear. Anyway, we understand the imagery. You don't want to take that which could kill you and potentially could already be a bit irritable, all right? And you don't want to poke it. And that's the language you're... Don't, why, why would you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, we, we've talked about jealousy before. There's several verses there on the back of your notes, and you can, you can read those. The idea that God is a jealous God is a clear teaching, especially the Old Testament. And, and don't get confused with God's jealousy and ours. Our jealousy, at least at some part, is always going to be misplaced. But there could be forms of human jealousy that are appropriate. So there's always going to be some misplacement here. 
uh, when it comes to God and his jealousy, it's always right uh, because God is worthy of my absolute devotion. And so God, so why, why would I give something, why would I give my heart and mind to something else when it would provoke the Lord to jealousy? And then he adds this last question, are we stronger than he? Do we really think we can withstand the jealousy of the Lord? And, and if you think you can, then you should go back and read Exodus again. And you should go back and read about the wilderness generation. What happens when you provoke the Lord to jealousy? Judgment. It is language of judgment. And so it, it, this is a stiff warning here. I mean, what Paul's words really should cause us to think very carefully about the potential for idolatry in our lives. It is there. It is there. Every time we wake up, it is a battle to fight. You will never win the battle. In other words, you won't go to bed one night and say, I never have to worry about idolatry ever again. In fact, you could almost say that is an act of idolatry in and of itself, all right? Because you're assuming you've got some power that you don't possess. Now, idolatry is very real. There are ways in which something or someone else woos us away from affection and devotion to the Lord. And we should carefully consider what those are. As Paul's words here are serious and to the point. Idolatry is dangerous. It's an act of corruption. And the consequence, especially of provoking the Lord's jealousy, is nothing that you, that you want to face. All right, so next week we'll, get to, uh, we'll have the business meeting. Then two weeks uh, we'll finish up chapter 10. And, uh, and Paul will finally answer you know, the question. Uh, you all have been just hanging on this. You've been wanting to know. If I go and eat dinner at somebody's house, should I ask them if they've offered this meat to an idol? All right, that's what we're going to talk about. All right, that's what Paul's going to talk about at the end of chapter 10. Uh, so if, if that's been a pressing, burning issue, if you're worried that you're eating dinner regularly with somebody who's out back sacrificing it to a false god, all right, this will answer your question. Okay, so you'll want to be here in two weeks, but please make sure you come back next week. Uh, important time of business in the life of the church. Again, if you didn't get one of these, uh, it's on the back table. If, if they run out tonight, there'll be plenty more Sunday. All right, so you can pick them up then. All right, let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for gathering us. We thank you for this word. And we do just uh, open our hearts and minds to you and to your spirit and to your word, uh, Lord, that we would be made aware uh, of what would be the very real threat of idolatry in our lives, that you would unearth and expose in us uh, the ways in which we show undue allegiance and affection to someone or something else. Lord, we, we, uh, we want you uh, to, to be the one that we love with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our strength. And, and we know that, that in Christ we can do that very thing. And it is only in Him that we can. And so, Father, may we consider how uh, we are walking so that we might walk in obedience to you. And God, I just thank you for these who come out tonight. Uh, what, what a privilege and encouragement and joy it is to be with God's people. And I pray, God, that now as we leave here, you would go with us, that we might know your manifest presence, uh, you granting us wisdom and grace and patience as we live uh, in the days to come, that we do so in faith and obedience to you, bringing glory to you, that you'd gather your people back together again, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. That's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.